Good morning. Those, there are still people coming in from church, but I want to get started because I don't think you want to listen to me. I think you're, you're here to listen to our speaker. Um, we started planning this Pathways in May, and we came up with an idea to do something about politics. And next week, of course, Brian Ellison, who does work with KCUR, is going to be talking about politics religion because he is also a minister. And I have been uh, very active in the library, and I have heard David Von Draley probably every time he's spoken. Uh, he, uh, David is here in Kansas City by choice. And he is the editor-at-large of Time Magazine, so we are blessed to have somebody like that here in Kansas City. And I went up after one of the library performances and said, would you like to talk in our pathways? Little did I have any idea that in May that we would have the election cycle that we have today. And I kept thinking... I don't want any major national problem to occur so that he has to be someplace other than at Country Club Church. So I thank him for that. David Vondrelli, as I said, is editor-at-large for Time Magazine. He has written more than 50 cover stories, and he has been with Time for the last nine years. His essay in the two, on the 2008 Time Person of the Year, Barack Obama, anchored the best-selling issue in the history of Time Magazine's most famous franchise. His work is, has been featured widely on television and radio, including Today, The Nightly News, The News Hour, and Morning Edition. Now he's helping to cover his third presidential election for Time and his eighth as presidential election. Prior to joining Time, Mr. Vondrelli was the senior writer and assistant managing editor of the Washington Post, where he covered national politics. Led by the paper's renowned features and cultural sections and style, he worked for the Post. His work for the Post has been collected in a number of anthologies, including America's Best Newspaper Writing. He's the author of several books, and I've read one and have not read the other. He uh, he read my book that I read is Triangle, and I don't know whether any of you have read it, but it's about the fire that changed New York City and America in the Garment District. He also has written a book, Rise to Greatness, Abraham Lincoln and America's Most Perilous Years. He was educated at the University of Denver and at Oxford University, and when I read that, I asked him this morning. I was born and raised in Denver, and so was he, and we didn't know each other then, but he went to college three blocks from where my dad had his business. They, the Vondrelli family lives here. His wife, Karen Ball, is also a journalist. Uh, David does the Dateline Washington uh, at the library. If you are a member of the Kansas City, Missouri Library, all of the Dateline Washington series that have now been going on, what, about five years? David does that for the library. He is also on the board for Truman Library and will be moderating the Bennett Lecture Series on November 12th. That's an annual lecture series that Truman Library puts on at Unity. Um, I don't want to spend any more time having you listen to me. I want you to meet Mr. Vondrelli. David? Well, thank you very much um, for coming down here to listen to me on this beautiful morning. 
Uh, I'm flattered and honored. Thank you for the invitation to this magnificent church. Um, and I'm impressed that any group of people can get together this close to this election after all we've been through and sit down together as in Christian fellowship. I will try to keep my remarks, um, if not neutral, at least uh, balanced. Um, and uh, we'll talk a little bit about the election. What I won't do is try to predict the outcome. Um, I'm not good at predictions. So I, I worry about misleading you. Um, and, uh, and I won't spend a lot of time telling you what's already happened, because I assume you know what's already happened. But I would like to talk for a little while, and then we'll open it up for questions uh, so that you can guide this in the directions that you'd like to take it, rather than where I might want it to go. Um, I'd like to talk a little bit about why I think we've had the extraordinary election season that we've had. Several people, while we were gathering, came up to me to remark on the fact that they've never seen anything like this uh, before. <clears throat> and certainly, I've never seen anything like it. But it occurred to me... Um, at some point in the spring that my whole career of covering politics, uh, which you've just heard is, is a lot longer than I, I like to remember, um, has been almost an accelerating sequence of things we'd never seen before. When I was growing up, uh, I certainly never thought um, – that I would wind up covering an impeachment trial of a, of a United States president in the U.S. Senate. And I would never have guessed what the topic of the trial would have been. <laughs> so that was extraordinary. And then following right on the heels of that, we covered um, an essentially tied election no matter how you felt about the outcome of the 2000 election, it was extraordinarily close. Uh, the Democrat, Al Gore, won the popular vote by only about a half a million votes <clears throat> out of close to 100 million votes cast. But the result, as you recall, came down to the state of Florida, where six million votes were cast. And we can't really say even what the real number of votes difference was. By some counts, it was fewer than 100. By some counts, it was around 500. But in any event, it was fewer than one vote out of every 10,000 ballots cast. Uh, I never thought I'd see a thing like that. 36 days of recount ending up, <coughs> excuse me, ending up in the United States Supreme Court. Didn't think I'd live through a day like 9-11. Didn't think I'd ever see uh, a war quite like the Iraq War, where 
regardless of how you might have felt about the beginning of it, it became increasingly clear to all of us that our government had forgotten to make any plan for what we were going to do once we had won the war. Won the war. That I didn't expect to see. Didn't expect necessarily to see somebody's son elected president shortly after he had been president, and I didn't really ever expect to see a president's wife on the verge of being elected president shortly after he was out of office. So all of these things, thank you so much. All of these things and more, these shifts back and forth from one party control to the other, the Senate's been back and forth, I don't know how many times in the 25 years or so that I've been covering it, big shifts in the House of Representatives. None of this did I expect to cover, and so I've, I have found myself wondering why, what's going on. And I'd invite you to entertain a couple of ideas. I think all of this is happening, and extraordinary things happening elsewhere around the world, because we're living through at least two uh, historic transformations. And change produces weirdness. There's no doubt about that. It does in our personal lives, and it does in our national life. The first change that we're living through um, started 25 years ago, but global change takes a long time to play out. We tend to think, because our news cycle is 24 hours, that maybe history happens in 24-hour segments, but really history happens over generations. And we're still living through the first generation after the Cold War. And that Cold War, if you look in historical terms, was one of the most stable periods in world history. It was a scary period with these two superpowers pointing nuclear weapons at each other. Very frightening period, but very stable half century from the end of World War II into the 1990s. Uh, the world was very well organized. The Western world, what I like to think of as the good guys, we had adopted a, a system of uh, you know, treaties and trade pacts and alliances that uh, gave us what historians now call the long peace didn't always feel that peaceful. There were small wars going on around the world. Some of those small wars loomed very large in our own lives, Korea, Vietnam. But in world historical terms, these were small wars. We have now lived this long peace since the end of World War II, which continues, thankfully, it's the longest period without a war between great powers since the Roman Empire. All right? It's easy to forget that. 
We've been very fortunate to have that. Seventy million people died in World War II. Seventy million people. That's more than in all the conflicts everywhere in the world in the 70 years since put together. So that stable you know, world that we had has been kind of falling apart for the past 25 years since the collapse of the Soviet Union. You no longer had that organizing principle of the two superpowers facing each other down. And so we've seen um, you know, the rise of non-state actors uh, as the lid has sort of come off of the dictatorships and tyrannies uh, in Africa, the Middle East. We've seen these terrorist organizations, which now kind of define uh, international conflict. Uh, and we've seen, I think, we're seeing a loss of confidence in these uh, global organizations that sort of held us together. <clears throat> I ne I'm, this is the first election where we've had a major candidate of either party seriously talking about why do we have NATO? You know, why do we have, uh, why are we negotiating trade agreements in, uh, in the Far East? Why are we doing, all of these things that were sort of taken for granted for a long time, it's up for grabs. So I've probably gone on too long about that one because it's not nearly as big, as big as that is, it's not nearly as big as the second revolution we're living through, which is the communications revolution. Uh, this little thing right here. Changing the world in ways we could never imagine. Politics is basically, if you can boil it down, basically the organizing of interpersonal human relationships, relationships and communication, right? This thing makes the networking of relationships and the speed of communication easier, faster, and more global than it has ever been in the history of the world. All right, and it's rolling over us so fast that we barely even can process uh, what's going on. You know, for me, I can barely turn it on. Um, my kids use it in entirely different ways than I do, and their children will use it in completely different ways, too. And it won't be this big clunky thing, you know. Soon they'll look at this gigantic thing and they'll be like, how could you carry that around? How did you live before it was implanted in your eyeball? Um, <laughs> the ability to communicate across space and time, which is what this represents, is the most potent political force there is. How do I know that? Why am I so convinced of that? It's because there's been a revolution sort of like this before in, a, in human history. It happened in the late 15th century when Johannes Gutenberg invented movable type. What did movable type do? It allowed you to, instead of having to write out a letter 
or an individual copy of a book, all of a sudden you could print mass quantities of the identical thing. You could do it quickly, you could do it cheaply, and then you could put it in somebody's you know, wagon or on the back of their horse or in a box on their boat, they could take it across the world. They could take it to the next country. They could take it to the next city. And all of a sudden, a person with an idea would not necessarily have to go from room to room to room like this in their town or as far as they could walk in order to spread their ideas. All of a sudden, they could spread their ideas potentially around the entire world and communicate with other people in other places about their ideas and not just living people but people who are going to be born 10 years from now or 100 years from now. Ideas could take root, they could spread. What did that movable type revolution do to human society? Well, off the top of my head, a few things that you've probably heard of. The Reformation, that was movable type. That was the, the spreading of the Bible so that people could read it for themselves. The Renaissance, the Enlightenment, the rise of democracy in the United States and then elsewhere in the world, the Industrial Revolution, the Scientific Revolution, all of these things unleashed, took some time, over hundreds of years, but all of these things unleashed by the invention of movable type, the ability to communicate with other people across space and time. What does this do? This allows me to communicate with anybody, potentially anyone on planet Earth, instantaneously. And now I don't need typesetting. I don't need uh, the money to produce the books, to buy the paper. I don't need a network of distribution. I don't need any of that to spread my ideas. It's, it's all just at the touch of the button, potentially. It's phenomenal what this can do. Things that you've never even heard of on Monday can be universally discussed by Wednesday. Uh, issues that n are on nobody's radar screen at the start of the week can be leading the news all around the world by the end of the week. People find each other regardless of their nationality, their place of birth, uh, even their language they speak. They can organize themselves around their own interests. You might think you're the only person in your town anymore that still knits or that does decoupage or that is interested in the novels of Robert Louis Stevenson or anything you can imagine. You can go on your computer, on your phone, in your pocket, and you can find people all over the country, all over the world who share that interest. That is mind-blowingly powerful.
It can do tremendous good. Did any of you catch the um, ice bucket challenge phenomenon <laughs> of a couple of years ago? People all over the world dumping ice water over their heads. Uh, the ALS Foundation raised over $100 million in a matter of weeks. And two years later, I read recently that there have been the first of what they expect will be a number of major scientific research breakthroughs into that disease, all because people started dumping ice water on their heads and putting movies of themselves on their Facebook pages. That's, that's incredibly powerful. But by the same token, how does ISIS organize itself and recruit disenchanted people in dozens and dozens and dozens of countries around the world? Same way, exact same thing. So it's not a good thing, it's not a bad thing, it's not a powerful, it's definitely powerful, but it's not one way or the other. It is the most powerful force for democracy in history. Donald Trump, whether entirely consciously or not, uh, gets it. I, re I remember for years, I, I think it was said that this is my eighth presidential campaign, and every campaign at every news organization I've worked with starts a couple of years before Election Day and always starts with a meeting of the political staff and the editors, and they all get in a room somewhere, and we all talk about how are we going to cover this upcoming election, what do we think the issues are going to be, how should we staff it, what are the big ideas we could... It, we try to get ahead, and then it all falls apart, the plans, best laid plans of mice and men. <clears throat> but, but that's how it always starts. And I can remember way back into the early 90s when uh, the Internet was just uh, kind of a, a concept of computer scientists. We knew that this was going to be important somehow, and so... At every one of these meetings, somebody would say, well, we've got to cover the campaign on the Internet. You know, it's, it's important. It's going to change politics. So somebody would get assigned to cover the campaign on the Internet, and there'd be a lot of stories early on about how this was going to change politics, and then it wouldn't change politics. And <clears throat> then have the same conversation again. Well... In 2004, it started changing politics. Uh, Howard Dean, governor of Vermont, uh, figured out how to raise some money on the Internet and was able to make himself a force briefly in the Democratic uh, nominating process that year. 2008, a young senator from Illinois, Barack Obama, figured out how to organize people through the internet and obviously got himself elected. But I would argue that it was really Donald Trump in 2016 that showed us what 
the political future might start to look like in this hyper-democratic age. He did what Silicon Valley calls disintermediating the business of politics. Big word, take it into its small parts. Intermediate, intermediary, middlemen, right? Go-betweens. A lot of our economy, our money economy, our political economy has been built around intermediaries, right? Like banks. They're intermediaries between piles of money and people who need some money. Uh, department stores are intermediaries between folks who make clothes or pots and pans or sheets and towels and people who need that for their house. Political parties are intermediaries between people who look in the mirror in the morning and think, there's a future president of the United States. There's not many of them, but they are, uh, they're hard to eradicate. Um, <clears throat> the parties are intermediaries between those people and voters, right? So what has these things been doing for the past six, eight, ten years very effectively? Eliminating intermediaries. Amazon now uh, and other online retailers allow you to go out into the world and find every imaginable piece of clothing or bedsheet that anyone wants to make. Increasingly, they're starting to, the Internet's starting to offer you opportunities to kind of create your own. Uh, and you can go directly to these things and you can order them directly, seamlessly, and it'll be delivered to your front door. Well, what, what's that gonna, what is that doing to people who are buyers for department stores, right? You don't need them anymore. And we see it in banking. We see it in uh, hotel operators with Airbnb. We see it in uh, taxi companies in the age of Uber and Lyft. More and more intermediaries being eliminated. And this year we saw Donald Trump eliminate an intermediary called the Republican Party. Yeah. And Republicans shouldn't take it personally because he also eliminated intermediaries called the media. He did complete end run around us. You couldn't quite tell that one as much because he was on TV all the time. But that was because, it wasn't because TV loved him so much, it's because this thing loved him so much. He entered that race with six million Twitter followers. I don't know what his number is as of this morning. And some similar number of, of Facebook watchers. And these were people who had been watching Donald Trump for uh, years, if not decades, as he made his way through first the real estate business and then into the television business, hugely successful quote-unquote reality show. Um, 
these folks felt that they knew Donald Trump, rightly or wrongly, after you've watched a guy on TV for years as he makes decisions and goes in the boardroom and tells people, you're fired, and all of that, they felt like they knew him. And nothing that I or Reince Priebus or John McCain or any other intermediary was going to tell those folks was going to change their minds about Donald Trump because they felt they had a personal relationship with him. He disintermediated the political process. He was the first, but I will make this prediction for you. He won't be the last. <laughs> he will not be the last. Uh, and the future ones are not necessarily going to be as self-limiting as Trump has been. I think I don't think it's a criticism to say that while he's been his own uh, best friend in his campaign, he's also been his own worst enemy. Uh, future disintermediated can candidates are potentially going to have more on the upside and less on the downside. I'm personally am, am taking Taylor Swift in 2036. <laughs> All upside, no downside. She's, she's a. <laughs> but this is what's going on: is that this thing, which is changing so much in our lives, one of the things that's changing is our politics. A couple of other thoughts about this transformation, and then I'd like to open it up to questions. Intermediaries can be good and they can be bad, right? I, as a member of the, of the media, which you know, gets its name from intermediation, right? Uh, as a member of the media, I, believe me, I know how bad we can be. I, I've seen the sausage made from the inside of the sausage factory. <laughs> and when people want to criticize the media, I, I'm never try to correct anybody except when people think that there's a big conspiracy of the media. I, I, I tell you, we're this bad all by ourselves. We don't, have to, <laughs> we don't have to get together and plan out how bad we're going to be. We just, it's just comes naturally to us. Uh, and I think as Christians, uh, with our understanding of human fallibility and original sin, you can appreciate how that happens. Um, but there, there are some values to having uh, the best journalism have a place in our conversation. The parties are capable of incredible idiocy, incredible, you know, corruption, self-dealing, all of these other things, but they also have been capable again and again through our national history of statesmanship, of, uh, you know, sober, wise decision-making. So when we throw out the baby and the bathwater, we are losing both bad and good. And at least so far, 
what this thing is good at, it's much better at saying no than saying yes in political terms. The power of no, as I call it, is on the rise in our politics right now. It's hard if any of you, and I imagine most of you have been, members of organizations, whether it's your church, it's your business, it's your PTA, you've been involved in trying to get something positive done, trying to build coalitions, trying to make the compromises that bring people along, trying to get people behind a vision and move them in a direction. And anybody who's been through that knows it is hard to do. But organizing that little committee of people in the back of the room, whispering to each other about what an idiot you are and how bad your idea is and how stupid, you know, the leadership of this company or the head of this committee or the pastor of this church, what are they, not, I don't know the pastor of this church, so, uh, <clears throat> God, I almost got in trouble there, but... Those folks are very easy to organize, the naysayers, the nitpickers, and they can kill uh, an idea very quickly. Well, you multiply that times a thousand, a million, a billion on these, in this communications phenomenon, and you can see that no is now easier than yes. I'll take a local example. And I'm, I, I, I don't have a strong position on this, but I think it's a good example for those of us who have been around a little bit in the world to see how the world has changed. Let's imagine there was a mid-sized uh, mid city in the middle of the country that had an airport that was about 50 years old. And when it was built, it was the state-of-the-art airport, but now it's no longer the state-of-the-art airport. And it's going to take some money to build a new one. And, you know, there's a lot of reasons to like the old one. But back in the old days before this, what would happen? Well, the airline executives might come to town and say, you really need a new airport. If we're going to put more planes in here, you've got to have this, that, and the other thing. And the Chamber of Commerce might look at this and say, well, you know, it'd be good for business to have a new airport, and the mayor, the city council, the county executives might argue over where it's going to be or that sort of thing, but they'd get in a room, they'd compromise, where are the jobs, who's going to get this, who's going to get that. Uh, ultimately, the leadership of the community would say, yep, we need a new airport, and a new airport would get built, right? That's kind of the way it worked. Now all those things can happen, and some people who think it's a bad idea to have a new airport just go on this, and they find each other. They can connect. They can make their arguments to each other in a way that would have been almost impossible before. And all of a sudden, they're more powerful when the vote comes than those you know, people who get things done, who used to get things done, and you've got no airport. 
So no, suddenly easier than yes. It's quicker, takes less time, less energy. You can say that's terrible. You can say that's democracy. The voice of the people is louder than it's ever been before. Like it, lump it. It's the world we live in and the world that is going to get more and more and more powerful. The last thought I'll plant out there is that I don't want to overgeneralize about the demographics in this room. But let me say that I think most of us are over 40. Um, <clears throat> and under dead, all right? <laughs> In my case, I'm not sure how far under dead, but uh, my kids are working on it, I'll tell you. <laughs> this zone is... That encapsulates the people who are most comfortable with the way the world used to be and least comfortable with the way the world is becoming. Folks under that age of 40, they never, if they have heard the name Walter Cronkite, they certainly never sat in their living room at 5 or 6 o'clock when Cronkite came on, knowing that in every house on the block and every block in the city and every city in the country was tuned to the same show at the same time, getting the same information, not necessarily agreeing what to do about it, but at least their conversation was starting in the same place. That's the world we know. We think of it as normal and what's happening as not normal. Below 40, that's not their normal. My kids are, this is the air they breathe and the water they swim in. And as a result, because I'm an optimist, I believe they're going to do much better with this and, and this hyper-democracy than us over 40s do with it. I had a friend, I, I won't pick on him, but sent me a, a thing from the internet recently, uh, uh, made a, a very good case for, for the Trump can candidacy and why, why he was supporting it. And, uh, but what he loved about it was that it was from the New Yorker magazine, which he knew was a left-wing, you know, kind of liberal source of information. He was amazed at such a uh, clear-thinking, you know, right, rightward-leaning view of the world would appear in the New Yorker magazine. So I, I was amazed, too, and I started to read it. And I don't know where this came from, but it did not come from the New Yorker magazine. Uh, which is renowned for paying a lot of attention to things like capitalization and periods, and uh, which we're missing from this. <laughs> he, the reason I tell this story is that this friend and I and most of us in this room we have a, a back brain built in 
long inculcated bias that if it's on TV or if it's published or something, it's somebody has has checked it. You know, it's it's probably got some reliability to it, and so I can I can read it and disagree with it. I can read it and agree with it. I can, but at least I can. You know, if they say it was from the New Yorker, it must be from the New Yorker. Nobody among our young people trusts, you know, these sources the way we've been inclined to trust them, or hopefully they're learning not to. Hopefully we're raising a generation of more active consumers of information uh, who maybe will be able to navigate this future with less trepidation and fear than I feel and that I hear so many Americans reflect back. Not only is the politics weird, but that the politics is really scary. We as Christians, and I don't want to take Brian's thunder from next week, he's the minister, but as Christians, one of our highest obligations is not to be afraid, right? To engage the world with hope and with optimism. And I encourage you, as you strap on your seatbelts for the politics yet to come, to do so with hope and with confidence and with goodwill and with trust in your neighbors and your friends who really are the same people they were before this happened. Uh, they may be noisier about their crazy ideas, but they always had them, and we did fine in the past. Uh, I think we're going to do fine in the future. Uh, I went a little over my time, but uh, I'm about on the time. Do we have any questions or thoughts? Or Yep. Yeah. Not mine, thank goodness, so far. <laughs> That's a great question. Um, if anyone couldn't hear it in the back, the, the observation is, and it's completely correct, that technology now allows my boss and everyone in the media to follow minute by minute who's reading what uh, on our website. It's still harder to track in print, but as more and more people do their reading digitally, um, it's, it's phenomenal. It's not an approximation. We can go down to the exact number of people who have clicked on a story, where they came from on the Internet, who referred them, how they got there. Um, and those metrics are uh, very influential in the media. And the question was, does that put a pressure on to be more sensational? Uh, more popular. Uh, it does. It does. But um, there continue to be 
some uh, institutions, and I'm lucky enough to work for one, that see that our interests are not only measured second by second, that we have a, a long-term relationship with our audience as well uh, that's built up over, in the case of Time Magazine, almost 100 years. Uh, we were founded, I think, in 1923. Um, and millions of, of people around the world still invite us into their homes, um, whether electronically or in print. And uh, that, and so there's a consciousness, while we want to give our audience what it's interested in, we also understand that that's expressed over a long period of time, not just minute by minute, and that we have to be very conscious of not doing something uh, in the short term that's going to do serious damage to our long-term relationships. Yeah. Yeah. Well, the Democrats have missed it too. I mean, it's uh, not everybody can do it. You know, I mean, uh, Jeb Bush, uh, not to pick on on Governor Bush, but just because he was so prominent in the campaign, I think, sort of old-fashioned. Uh, Reporters and and party members thought that he would come in and and if not be the nominee, certainly be there at the end of the end of the game. Uh, knows a lot of policy, has tremendous amount of experience, has uh, enormous connections in the fundraising and and the political worlds. All these things that used to be markers for a serious candidate, he. He's not a TV star. He's not uh, a Facebook star. He's not a Twitter star. And so he can't just say, well, I'm going to get uh, six million followers for my Facebook page. It's a whole way of being. It's a whole different way of relating to the world. Um, and so uh, there... Only Trump in this round had that kind of direct relationship with a huge audience going into the campaign. I mean, not even uh, Secretary Clinton, as famous as she is, uh, doesn't have that kind of, still doesn't have that kind of following uh, among grassroots people. Hmm, that's interesting. Um, well, what he brought into the campaign, uh, he brought in because he's entertaining. Because it was, and I don't mean that critically, just an observation. He built that audience on TV with his show, The Apprentice, 
which for several years was one of the highest rated shows on TV. And it was built uh, entirely around Donald Trump and the person of Donald Trump. So um, you could argue that, and this is what I mean about he's not going to be the last person to transform a social network into a campaign. And the ones in the future, someone will probably do it much better than he has. Because I would make the case that he hasn't been that effective in turning those uh, followers into a political movement as much as he likes to use that language that we're a movement. I think it's still very uh, – uh, people are his, – his base is, is putting on him – he's a vehicle for what they want him to be. I mean, I, I hear this all the time. I go around and talk to Trump supporters. Some of them think uh, he's, uh, you know, going to send the army around the world to wipe out ISIS. Um, well, he said he's not going to send the army anywhere. Um, he, he's, an, he's, he's a lot of people um, in our neighborhood, uh, pretty you know, kind of sober, Republican-leaning area. I hear over and over again, well, yeah, he says all that stuff, but he's a businessman, so he's going to put a bunch of really reliable people in place and let them do their thing. Uh, That might be. I don't see how you could look at his campaign and, and think that that's the way he operates because he doesn't take advice from anybody. I mean, he has brought in a lot of terrific people, and they're there for a week or a month or three months, and they leave because he won't pay any attention to what they're, they're telling him. But you see, it's, people are projecting on to, to him. Uh, yeah. Yes. Right. Yeah. That's a a great point, and it's one of the things that I think, based on nothing, um, <laughs> which is. My wife would tell you it covers a lot of ground in my head. Um, uh, I think the younger generations are going, I think there's going to be a backlash against oversharing um, of ourselves online and a, a desire to, uh, among normal people, you know, most people, a desire to put less of ourselves out. Uh, into uh, into the cloud, um, not knowing where it's going to go. Uh, f- so yeah, yeah. How does a, a 
It's hard. It's hard. It's um, we have, and this year has been particularly hard because uh, it's no secret um, that uh, most of the media, particularly the legacy media, is is concentrated. Their headquarters are in New York or Washington, and having lived both places, they're full of nice people. But those nice people. Uh, tend to be liberals, um, and so um, I, we've got. A, and particularly, like if you go in, <laughs> if you go into our place, we have political reporters uh, who are pretty easy to keep near the middle. Uh, we can argue with each other. We can give each other feedback. Uh, but also working at the place are, you know, art critics, television critics, photographers, design, page designers. And these people uh, tend to be, you know, good uh, Brooklyn liberals, you know. And so they've been coming to work for months in, in absolute panic about Donald Trump and, you know, demanding that – Time Magazine somehow stop him, you know. <laughs> uh, I'm like, I'm sorry, you do not understand uh, what the world is like out there. So uh, we've been fortunate to have a really strong uh, top editor, Nancy Gibbs, the greatest writer for Time Magazine in the history of those 95-plus years, now I think as good an editor as we've ever had. And just week after week after week, she listens to everybody, lets everybody have their their fill, and then you know, always finds her way back to this fact that even though Folks may, most of our staff may live surrounded by one political viewpoint. We serve an audience that is everywhere on that spectrum, and she always has our audience in mind. It's not easy, but uh, it's part of the reason she says that she likes having me work in Kansas City because. Uh, uh, living just across the state line, I am not surrounded by a lot of Brooklyn liberals. Um, there's a few, a few, but there. So, one or two more, yeah. What are the educations doing today for education? What are the colleges doing for education now, as opposed to 50 years ago? Yeah. Uh, wow. This versus the um, I'm, I'll, I'll answer that in two ways. One, I'm glad I got educated 40 years ago. Uh, it gave me, um, because I feel like I came out of college, I wasn't the best student in the world, but um, I feel like I knew that I was right at the tail end of, uh, of an effort to teach everybody in college a few things so that we, you then could go and have conversations. It's like I remember somebody asking, why are we studying the Bible? 
you know, in English class. And the English professor said, because every writer up until about 30 years ago had read the Bible, and that's what they, you know, so you're, you're not going to understand what they're talking about if you haven't. So I'm glad I got that education. Having said that, the explosion of knowledge associated with this is so immense that this idea that anybody could know, you know, that there could be a, a common well, and if you know that, you'll be fine, that's just out the window. I mean, my hero as a young English student was Samuel Johnson, uh, great late, uh, late 18th century English uh, man of letters who wrote by himself the first great dictionary of the English language. Well, to write a dictionary, uh, you have to know everything, you, literally. I mean, because you've got scientific words in there. You've got uh, words about, from religion, words from... You have to know basically everything. And he had read everything there was to read. There's an anecdote in Boswell where they walk into a, a library and Boswell says to him, how many of these books do you think you've read? And he looks around and says, all of them. He says, you've read all these through? He says, I've never read a book all the way through. Um, <laughs> such a thing is not imaginable any, anymore. It's not imaginable. And so the colleges, I think, have so much harder job now than they did before. They have to teach people not so much a body of knowledge, but how to learn and how to think. And that's tough. Listen, thank you very much for your time. <laughs>